Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, good morning. I do hope that you had a good Christmas and New Year. Um, I've been telling people a couple times, I've said it already to people in the hall, that this is the time of year where my family gets the flu, and so um, that's part of sort of the Christmas tradition. I hope that you avoided it, or if you didn't, that you're over it. Um, But we did have a very good time, aside from that. (laughs) So our text for this morning is Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 14. And I wanted to preach on this passage because ever since I was a little child, I've been familiar with the verse Jeremiah 29.11. Many of you probably know it by heart. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that my mom had that in some kind of calligraphy you know, a picture on the wall, framed on the wall in my house, and so that's why I remember it. And it wouldn't surprise me if mo- many of us in this congregation uh, have that verse as part of our home decor in some way, one way or another. Um, sometime in my college days, though, as I was a little older, I started to wonder about the context of Jeremiah 29.11. What was it all about? Such a, you know, the the book of Jeremiah isn't normally where we go to for inspirational uh, quotes. And yet it's such a strong, magnificent promise. And without any context, I'd always read it very personally. You know, God knew the plans that he has for my life. And those plans are good all the way down. Um, I was just reading it the way any good American evangelical would thinking that the world revolved around me and that the Bible had been written just for me. And so at some point I started to wonder how in the world this one line in Jeremiah could have had such, could be such a powerful promise specifically for me. I mean, how is that going to work? And if, if it's a promise just for me because I'm a Christian, how is it possible that God is promising that plans he has for every single individual Christian are all good, all the time, always in every way, always getting better. Um, could, it be poss- could it possibly be true that God knew the plans he had for every specific individual Christian and that they were always all good? <clears throat> the short answer to these questions that troubled me is that we must not be children as we understand and read the Bible. This is, I was you know, interpreting the Bible in kind of a silly way. I was taking a verse completely out of context and applying it, but essentially willy-nilly. I mean, the, the good plans I envisioned that God had for me were just about anything, you know, that I would get into college, that I would, you know, get a new bike, whatever. It just didn't matter. It would be whatever I wanted it to be at that particular moment. And, of course, that's silly, right? We don't read the Bible like that. We have to, when we read the Bible, we have to actually ask ourselves questions like, Who was this passage written to? What did it mean to the people reading the passage, uh, reading it back then? What does it mean today? Uh, The Bible does say that Scripture, all Scripture, is profitable, 
And so it is profitable for me today, but I need to ask the question, how is it profitable? I can't just apply it woodenly. And so years ago, I did a remarkable thing. I actually read the context of Jeremiah 29 and the surrounding passages. And, of course, it was quite remarkable. Now, before I read the passage, I want to very quickly orient you uh, to the historical context. A long time ago, King David was the king of Israel, right? And then his son Solomon came after him. You've heard about the wisdom of Solomon. And so this is the heyday, the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. This is when the kingdom of Israel was at its peak in terms of its power and prestige and so forth. Things began to fall apart after Solomon. When he died, uh, there was fighting and the nation split. The ten tribes in the north were referred to as the nation of Israel. And they essentially walked away from God and God punished them. And they were uh, attacked, taken into captivity, essentially destroyed. And the two tribes in the south, referred to as the kingdom of Judah, the nation of, I mean, the nation of Judah, it was the, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And so they still, they remained in the land uh, after the ten tribes in the north had been destroyed. But about a hundred years or so after the northern tribes were carried off into captivity, the Babylonian Empire rose up and attacked uh, these, final, these last two tribes in the south. This is when Nebuchadnezzar enters the scene, as you read about in the book of Daniel. And he brings his Babylonian army right up to Jerusalem, lays siege to it. He doesn't destroy the city, but he takes all the smartest, the best-looking, the wealthiest people, and, and takes them into captivity into Babylon, many, many miles away. And so this is precisely where we're left when we read Jeremiah 29. As we, you'll see in this passage, this chapter is a letter written to the exiles in Babylon. Okay, so they've just been deported, and we're, Jeremiah is speaking God's word to the people in Babylon. So let's read Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 14. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into, the ex- into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now, the first thing I want to point out in this passage is the phrase, thus says the Lord. Scripture is our rule, and Scripture, because, Scripture is our rule because Scripture is the Word of God. It's not hip, it's not new, but we listen because God is speaking in His Word. Uh, this passage, Jeremiah 29, is often referred to, talked about, when um, pastors, theologians are talking about what it means to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a pagan city. Essentially, God is sending his nation, his people, into a pagan city, and he's telling them to be fruitful, and that's going to have an impact on the city of Babylon, right? And so, um, many current modern-day theologians and pastors talk about this in terms of what it means to contextualize uh, the gospel for the city in which you live. But if you listen to, to many modern-day preachers, they'll often do this, they'll, they'll argue this, uh, at the very same time that they, l- that they lower the authority of Scripture by often quoting uh, other books, other people, and that's okay to do to a point, but we have to understand that as we go into the city, as we love Bloomington, as we speak to our neighbors about Jesus, about the gospel, we, we must not do it in a way that denigrates, that brings Scripture down in terms of its authority. We must have the faith to trust that God will work in their hearts, even if they're not a Christian, and that they'll that they will recognize the authority of Scripture even if they don't do do so right now. So why is this such a big point? Well, often uh, we talk around Scripture. When we talk to non-Christians, we act as if Scripture is not an authority for them. And the reality is, even though they don't acknowledge it, they don't accept it, Scripture is an authority for them. And if you, you talk to them as if it isn't, you've given up the, the fight at the very beginning. Okay, so as we love Bloomington, I want us to remember, thus says the Lord, that we must speak trusting that God will work, even though we know that they don't hold to the same authorities that we know are true and are, are right. <clears throat> that they don't, even though they don't believe in Scripture, we must use it as the authority that it is. Second, I want you to notice the little phrase, I have sent, in verse 4. The Lord says that he sent the exiles into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Years ago, uh, when I was in high school in the Ivory Coast, 
I remember having a conversation with a, uh, a girl, an Indian, Indian girl, who was telling me about how she didn't really believe, she, she basically didn't believe that God intervened on, on a regular basis with human history. So she said, you know, if an airplane flies in the air, uh, the reason it stays in the air is because of things like gravity and th- laws of thermodynamics and so forth. It's got nothing to do with, uh, uh, with God keeping the, air, the, the plane in the air. Um, in a similar way, it's, you know, if, if things happen in life, it's not because God, this is her argument, it's not because God somehow intervened, but because the person did something or had something done to them or so, and so forth. And so if she had read the book of Jeremiah, she might have taken issue with the phrase, I have sent, that we read uh, in this passage. She would have said that the king of Babylon had sent them into exile and that God had nothing to do with it. Now, she might have thought that she was making a sophisticated point, but it's not a difficult one to answer. Uh, The answer is simply that God does many things in the course of human history by means of various actors within human history. So, for instance, God carried out his plan of redemption by using Joseph and Mary when Jesus was born and by using Judas and Pilate when Jesus was crucified. These were real people in human history who assumed that they were doing their own thing, uh, doing what they thought was right, Um, and perhaps they were, but the truth is also that God was using them to bring about his plan of salvation for the whole world. And so there's no conflict between reporting uh, the historical fact that the king of Babylon carried off the people of Judah because he wanted to take them captive, and also saying that God sent them into exile. There's no conflict between those two things. Both are true. But if we're honest, we will acknowledge that the real reason we don't like the fact that it says that God sent them into exile is that we uh, recognize that captivity is an awful thing. And why would God send his people into captivity? That sounds terrible. How could it be that he would send the people that he loved, his people, into captivity. And this is the way that many people argue when they want to, they do not want to acknowledge God's sovereignty. And, and um, when you reject the sovereignty of God, his control over all things, you feel very often that you have to protect God from himself. That how, you know, how could God, we try to protect God from appearing evil, and so we deny that he could possibly be the cause of things that are very painful or very difficult. But God very clearly says here, I have sent. And so, in other words, this wonderful promise of hope that we read in Jeremiah 29.11, you know, the striking thing to me when I read the context, is that it comes in the midst of extremely painful, difficult things for the nation of Israel. And so if you're going to honestly wrestle with this passage, you have to wrestle with what it means to live under the judgment of God. This is precisely what the nation of Israel at the time was experiencing. They were experiencing the judgment of God. He hadn't cast them off forever, but he has said, you are going to be in exile so that you will learn to what it means to submit to me and and follow me with all your heart. 
God is teaching his people with this experience what it means to submit themselves to him under his judgment. And so what we have to learn is what it means, what this passage has to teach us is that we must learn what it means to submit to God in suffering. Now, I've talked a number of times, um, both publicly and privately, about uh, this past year in my life and the life of my family. Uh, it's been a difficult year with my daughter Mary. She's gone through Mary Louise. She's um, gone through quite a lo- number of difficulties. Uh, she was born on December 28th, and so she just turned one, and it's kind of given us an opportunity, Hannah and I especially, an opportunity to consider um, this past year and to think about it. And one of the most important things I learned this past year that I trust God showed me this past year is that when I go through difficult things, when we go through difficult things, we should pray and ask God to show us, to give us the ability to suck out every possible benefit from the difficult experiences that we go through. Of course, if you're a good American, that's precisely the opposite of what you are naturally bent on doing. Um, uh, it's kind of a, a joke in the Bailey family, uh, but you know, I will be. I am happy to serve in any way Mary Lee wants me to when I'm at their house, as long as it means that dinner will be on the table sooner rather than later. Right? It doesn't matter. She can ask me to do anything I, anything she wants to, as long as I get to eat sooner. Um, in the same way we're happy to put up with quite a lot if it means that I get to do whatever I want to do sooner rather than later but of course to do that is to waste the very opportunity that God has given us through the suffering and God the false prophets at the time of Jeremiah were saying oh yeah there's going to be a speedy return just a couple of years and you'll be back in the land of in your home in your home and Jeremiah says no god will you, god is sending you there for 70 years and you need to get comfortable cuz you're going to be there a long time and you and you need to learn through the experience what it means to seek god with all your heart and so my question to you this morning as we start this new year um What is God trying to teach you in suffering? Are you even open to it? Or are you resisting it? Remember that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The next thing I want you to notice is that God calls the people to build, plant, and marry while in exile. And again, if you spend any time thinking about that and what it means, it's really incredible. Um, the, the nation of Babylon, the army of Babylon, had just killed a lot of their relatives, destroyed their homes, and have taken them captive, as captives, to a foreign country, to the land, of, to the city of Babylon, to, to a foreign place. And God says to the people of Israel, carry on as usual, build houses, plant vineyards, marry, and have children. Get used to it. Get comfortable. They had no social... It's silly to say, right? It's silly to even bring this up, but they had no social security. 
They had no pension fund. They didn't have the Constitution, right? There was no Bill of Rights. Any, any house that they built at any time could have been destroyed. Any garden that they planted at any time could have been, the produce of it could have been taken away. Their children, imagine raising children in a, in a place where you are a captive. They could take your children anytime they want to and perhaps send them into slavery. You have no idea. And of course, we read later and we think, oh, well, you know, it all worked out. They were able to return. And even, you know, the, the king at that time when they returned, they, the king sent them back with extra supplies. And so it was all great. But they didn't know any of that at the beginning of, of their time in exile. They knew nothing. There, there was no guarantees of anything. And God says to them, build, plant, and marry. So what are you afraid of? We don't live in captivity, of course, far from it. But I know that many of us feel in, in many ways that the rug is kind of being pulled out from under us in this country, right? We feel like things are changing. The laws that have been based on, uh, in many ways, based on Christian, our Christian heritage as a nation um, are being changed and taken down. And um, so in, in some ways we feel... Uh, like like we're in a foreign place or it's becoming more and more foreign as the days go on. What can we learn from God's command to his people in this passage uh, for us today? What can we learn? Well, the first thing I want to point out uh, is to get married and have children. Um, we hear about that a lot today or a lot in this church but it's... It, it bears repeating, of course, and in fact, um, the command to be fruitful and multiply is stated in the Garden of Eden before the fall. So the Jews at the time, in, in the time of Jeremiah 29, uh, would have known it also, right? They, they, they wouldn't necessarily have needed the reminder, except that, of course, just like us, they needed to be reminded to have the faith to get married and to have children, we need these helpful reminders. And of course, um, it is assumed, you, you recognize the connection between getting married and have children, I hope, in this passage. It is assumed uh, that you are married so that you might increase and not decrease. And of course, a natural, uh, the natural next point to that is that we must learn not to be anxious for our children. I want to tell you a dirty little secret the sense of security and peace and whatever else that you have for your children right now is actually a lie. They're not any more secure or uh, in a peaceful place just because you, mom or dad, are alive and there to make sure everything goes great. Uh, the truth is that that sense of security that you have is simply false. The people of Israel, when they were sent as exiles to the, to the foreign country, had to trust God. They had nothing else. They had no other guarantees about anything at all. And they had to trust God. And may we learn to do the same thing. That we will trust that God 
will be a God to our children. <clears throat> Again, I, I said it earlier, building, planting, having children are all acts of faith. It, is, it assumes that God will be a father to you and to your children uh, and that God will provide for you and your children. We must have the faith to do these things even when we're terrified about how things will turn out for them. The people of God also, we should, in terms of what it means to live under wicked rulers or um, in a place that doesn't feel quite like home, the people of God were not to give themselves to the customs and pleasures of Babylon. Uh, Babylon was where they were to live, but it wasn't their home, right? They were exiles. They were to be there 70 years. They were to do all the things that you do at home. You build and you plant and you marry, you have children. But that wasn't their home. And instead of giving themselves to the customs and pleasures of the Babylonians, they were commanded to do the things that, the, that we have always been commanded to do since the Garden of Eden. Build, plant, and marry. And if they were commanded to do them in exile, to do those things in exile, how much more we here in Bloomington, Indiana, right? How much more? We also see that God commands his people to seek the peace and prosperity of their very captors. If the previous section was difficult for us, because of our lack of faith, verse 7 will be even more difficult. He, God commands his people to seek the, the welfare of their captives, captors. They were commanded to quietly bear up under a tyrannical government. <clears throat> now, Americans have a deep, abiding hatred for authority. We hate it. And... We don't like people telling us what to do. And so this passage is actually very helpful and instructive to us in particular. (coughs) God commands his people to seek the welfare of Babylon, the city where they are being held captive, to pray to God on its behalf, and um, that in its welfare, in the welfare of the city of Babylon, they, his people, God's people, would also have welfare. And um, what I want to stress at this point is that we are to honor those in authority over us. Rulers are not simply, as um, some political theorists, libertarians might tell you, uh, a necessary evil. I don't know if that's exactly what libertarians say, but I know that that's an one idea in terms of thinking about politics, that, that, that rulers are a necessary evil. That's not how Christians should think about it. God calls us in his word to honor the king. And that goes beyond putting up with a necessary evil. If you extend the argument out uh, further, uh, if we think of authority as simply a necessary evil, as something that's kind of nasty but has to be there, um, we'd be caught 
thinking of God, who is the ultimate authority, as the ultimate necessary evil, which of course is ridiculous, right? This is, God is not a necessary evil. Uh, God is perfect and holy, and we're to honor him, and we are consequently also to honor those in authority over us. Now, if you're anything like me, or if you're an American, and you're looking for any way to get out from under the authorities that have been placed over you, you want to ask your, you'd ask yourself the first question, but what about wicked authorities? <clears throat> what about the authorities that we have that are evil? Um, surely God would want us to throw off their authority. And I'm not going to attempt to develop a full answer to this question, of course, this morning. But we must understand the foundational truth about wicked rulers. They are appointed by God, and they are an opportunity for us to repent and to return to God in prayer and to ask that he will deliver us. This is such an important point, and it is completely lost on the normal, average uh, evangelical Christian in this country. It is evil for a nation to turn away from God and to make laws opposed to God's law. And yet, it's almost as if evangelical Christians are at the very head of the parade cheering on the destruction of such laws, for instance. Um, Many evangelicals have acted as if it's a good thing that there's now same-sex marriage in this country or perhaps that uh, we're striking down laws or we're creating laws that prohibit... um, uh, counseling such that uh, we counsel homosexuals to abandon that lifestyle and to um, be men or be women. And so we must recognize that the cultural and legal changes in our land are a judgment of God. They are a judgment of God and we must be on our knees before God asking for his mercy. Evangelicals in this country are often, it's as if we celebrate that non-Christians are no longer uh, living under the tyranny of Christian laws. That's crazy. You know, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We should pray that such laws would be reenacted, but the first step is to recognize the judgment and to be on our knees before God. Now, an interesting uh, connected point to this, um, I realized as I was preparing, is that there are, of course, many reasons why, why terrorism is not permitted for Christians, even under wicked authorities, um, but this is one of them, and this is one of them, right? Just because we live under a wicked ruler or a wicked law does not mean that we're permitted to simply blow people up, uh, to, to tell the world about our frustrations, right? We reject the violence done t- even to uh, people who do things that we find terrible. So, for instance, um, uh, the recent shooter in Colorado who killed an abortion doctor, right? We reject that kind of violence. Why? Because we submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God And we trust that he will deliver us. Sometimes God judges a nation and destroys it for its wickedness, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. At other times, 
like Jonah in the city of Nineveh, God leads the city to repentance and faith. <clears throat> we must be willing to submit to God's hand of judgment. Uh, years ago, I read a book on the recommendation of Tim Bailey, um, our senior pastor, called Robert E. Lee on Leadership. And one of the things that really jumped out to me about that book was that uh, after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee, he was the Confederate general who for many years in the war was very successful against fighting against the North, right? He was very successful in doing that. But ultimately, as you know, he lost. Um, and what he did after the war is that he actually traveled around the South telling people to submit and to, to surrender. Now, this really stuck out to me because I'm a missionary kid and I grew up in the Congo, right? And there's no African warlord ever has had that thought occur to him, I should maybe submit now because I've lost, right? That's never happened. <clears throat> and I, you, to understand the significance of Lee doing that, you have to understand that Robert E. Lee was and is probably today and still in many parts of the South considered a saint, right? He's like a paragon. Um, they would have done anything that Robert E. Lee had told them to do in the South. And yet, he was willing to recognize God's hand of judgment on him and on the South. And so he went around telling the people, no, this is the judgment of God and we must be quiet and submit to it. I think that was godliness on Lee's part. That was godliness. And we are long ways downstream from that, but we also must submit and pray that God will deliver us and not take things into our own hands. Now, God in this passage says that uh, not only are they to submit to those, the, the authorities, their captors, but they're to actually seek the welfare of the city. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that we need to pray for the leaders in our city. It means that we need to pray for Bloomington. Not just the leaders, but our, our fellow Bloomingtonians. And, of course, what God is doing here is um, pretty incredible when you think about it. He is calling his people to fall in love with their captors and oppressors in the, sa in the, very, the very same way that Jesus loved sinners like you and I, like you and me. When you, can you pray for somebody without starting, even if you don't at the beginning, without starting to love them? It's hard to do, right? If you're committed to praying for someone, it's very natural that you'll start to love them. And this is precisely why we've emphasized Love Bloomington so much this past year. We, do, we must not be a church that simply circles the wagons ready for the rest of the world to go to hell. We do not want to be like that. We may not be like that. Jesus said that we are the light of the world, and that means that we must be in the world even as we're committed to not being like the world, not being of the world. And that means we must love our city 
even as it breaks our hearts to see what happens in our city. You know, um, we must love our city. Now, what does it mean, in its welfare, you will have welfare? What does that mean? Um, In the welfare of the city, you, nation of Israel, people of God, will have welfare. Well, to understand that, we have to consider the book of Daniel. And if you remember in the book of Daniel, uh, it's actually from the perspective of people who are captives in Babylon. And two stories I'll mention. You've got Daniel, right? He uh, is, he rises in uh, prestige and honor in the kingdom. He's gifted. He's hardworking. He's faithful. He loves God and trusts God and is praying for the, the deliverance of the people. Um, and yet, precisely because of his faithfulness, he sticks his neck out and disobeys some wicked laws that uh, the king puts in place. And so he gets himself thrown into a lion's den for the purpose of being eaten by the lions, right? And so, on the one hand, you've got... uh, Him being promoted and then very much demoted and then back promoted again, right? (laughs) And the same way we've got the characters Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They too uh, said, no, we will not obey a wicked uh, law that the the, um, king gives. And so they're tossed into a fiery furnace and God delivers them and the king honors them once they've been delivered. And the, the reality with both these stories is that both sets of people, both faithful sets of men, are actually, uh, they were both involved in, in doing work that was helpful to the kingdom of Babylon, to the, to the city of Babylon. They were seeking the welfare of the city in which they lived. And so, um, is... You know, you might ask the question, well, uh, as evangelicals, we think that when we're called to seek the, city, uh, the welfare of the cities in which we live, these pagan cities in which we live, that that means that we should be promoted, and that when we're promoted, we're doing a good job of seeking its welfare, and when we're de- demoted or excoriated or insulted, we're doing a bad job. And that's not the case. That's not true. God was honored by these sets of men, both when they were being promoted because of their faithfulness and when they were thrown into lion's dens because they disobeyed wicked laws. And so sometimes you will be recognized as you work hard and as you um, pray and work for the benefit of Bloomington. You'll be recognized for that work and be promoted. And that's good. Praise God. But don't grow proud. Don't grow comfortable because at, on the next day you might be thrown into a lion's den or something similar. Um, and trust that God will use each experience for his glory. Okay, Don't fall into the trap of thinking that just because you're being promoted, that's the only time that God is being honored. It happens either way. Um, you'll get both reactions. But the main thing is, uh, these men demonstrated their love for their city by being in the public square so much, and so we 
must also be committed to being in our city, in Bloomington. And don't grow weary. If you're tempted to grow weary in well-doing in the public square, don't, don't grow weary. Trust God that he will uh, cause there to be good fruit. <clears throat> now, as we close, I want to leave you with just three final points. Um, first, let judgment begin with the household of God. The overarching reality of this letter is that Jeremiah is sending a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And it's the exiles, not the people who were staying in Jerusalem, but the exiles who were the people that were being preserved by God. Those are the ones who submitted to God's word by submitting to the wicked, tyrannical authority of the king of Babylon. Those that did not submit to that authority eventually were completely... The king uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually came back, or perhaps a later king, came back and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and all the people living in the city of Jerusalem. So it was the people who stayed, who, let, who were there, um, that came under more severe judgment of God. And this is constantly the way it is. God makes a distinction even within his people, within, uh, within his people and preserves the remnant and so we must not be ashamed or surprised when God makes these distinctions. Okay, God, is, God makes distinctions all the time, as Pastor Bailey likes to point out. And um, we must recognize that these, this distinction between the people of God and those who uh, resist God will happen everywhere the church is present. But we must also remember, and this is my second point, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Remember, the glorious promise of Jeremiah 29.11 was given to the church that did, to the, to the people that did submit to the hand of God in judgment. God is showing tenderness to those who humbly come to him. <clears throat> now as you begin this new year, uh, you may very well be starting off with one of two common evils, right? Either you're despairing about the possibility of any change in your life this coming year because of your experience in past years, or perhaps you're filled with foolish pride, and Doug and I might be know about that. We've got a couple, uh, the brothers, my brothers-in-law and I had a couple resolutions for this year, might be foolish pride, we'll see. Um, but Christ has given us a third way and a better way, and that is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and trust that He will work in us and through us. And finally, we must remember that this promise, this is a promise to His church and not to individuals. So, insofar as we are part of the church, we can claim this promise for ourselves corporately. But remember, there were many who died in captivity or in the desert who weren't able to see the fulfillment of the promise themselves, individually. And yet they had to see with the eyes of faith and with hope. And so my prayer for us this year is that we will live this year in hope, trusting that God will use this church as a city on a hill, as light in this part of the world. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you so much uh, for your word. And we pray, Father, that we would be committed to it this year. We pray that you would please help us to have faith, to obey you, and to follow your commands, and to trust you with whatever comes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming to the Lord's table is an act of faith. Um, I uh, teach the newcomers class and I was just talking today about how God, as we grow in sanctification, we, we understand our sin better and better. And so as you grow as a Christian, uh, you understand sins that you did not understand when you were a new Christian. And that doesn't mean that you're not qualified to come to this table. It's precisely those people who are understanding their sin better and better and who are able to better and better repent of their sin, who are, who are welcome and invited to come to this table. This table is for... Sinners who are saved, not by their own works, but by the grace and mercy of God. And so if you are a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, whether in this church or some other church, we invite you. And if you are willing to, as a Christian, walk, um, live the life of repentance, we, we welcome you to this table. <clears throat> Beloved in the Lord, listen carefully to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 11. I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup which he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. And as our Savior gave thanks and blessed, let us now draw near to the throne of grace and present to God our prayers and thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for this table. And we pray now that as we come to be a part of this meal, to join together with each other and with you, we pray that you would please give us tender consciences that we will confess our sins and joyfully approach the throne of grace, not trusting in our own work, but in your work for our salvation and for our peace with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.